0: Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app.
1: This
2: is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. A new revival of Stephen Sondheim's musical Sweeney Todd just opened on Broadway. The original show premiered on Broadway in 1979 and won eight Tony Awards. The music is extraordinary, and our guest, Josh Groban, gets to sing it. He stars in the title role. New York Times theater critic Jesse Green called the revival, quote, "...ravishingly sung, deeply emotional, and strangely hilarious." Josh Groban talked about Sweeney Todd, his life and career, with Fresh Air's and marie Baldonato. Josh
3: Groban first auditioned for the role of Sweeney Todd back in high school for a summer camp production of the musical. He didn't get the part at the time, but he never really gave up that dream of playing the demon barber of Fleet Street. In the years since, Josh Groban did manage to become a multi-platinum artist not so long after that camp audition. He was discovered as a teenager and released his debut album in 2001. He went on to perform in front of huge crowds while on tour and developed a rabid following of his pop operatic sound. And he sold over 35 million records worldwide. He's appeared in movies and TV shows, often self-deprecatingly playing himself, and he's been nominated for Grammys, Emmys, and a Tony Award. That Tony nomination in 2017 for Best Actor in a Musical was for his Broadway debut in the show Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. He's back on Broadway in the revival of Sweeney Todd, the story of a London barber wrongfully convicted, imprisoned, and separated from his beloved wife and daughter. After years, he escapes prison and is out to seek revenge on those who've wronged him. He partners with a struggling baker named Mrs. Lovett, with Sweeney killing his clients and Mrs. Lovett grinding up their remains and turning them into meat pies. Here's a song from Sweeney Todd at the point of the show, when they first hatched their plan. Josh Groban plays Sweeney, and Mrs. Lovett is played by Tony Award-winning actor Anna Lee Ashford. What is that? It's fop, finest in the shop, (laughs) and I've got some shepherd's pie peppered with actual shepherd on top, (laughs) and I've just begun. Is the politician so oily, it's served with a doily, have one.
4: Uh, Put it on a bun, well you never know if it's going to run. clergy is really too coarse and too Yes, and always arrives overdone
3: I'll
0: come again when you have judge on the menu True, true, we we
3: we don't have judge yet But we've got something you might fancy even better What's that? Executioner
0: Customers that we can get Highborn and low, my love Will
4: not discriminate great from small Nor will serve anyone Meaning
3: That's Josh Groban and Annalie Ashford from the new revival of Sweeney Todd. Josh Groban, welcome to Fresh Air.
4: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
3: Congratulations on this great production. The story of Sweeney Todd is menacing. It's about grief, rage and loss. Also, it has grisly murder and cannibalism in that song (laughs) we just heard. You're talking about turning people into pies. I know this is a role that you've wanted to play for a long time since you were younger. What was appealing to you about this show when you were a kid?
4: I mean when you when you mention the storyline <laughs> like that i I just I, I think back to like what the elevator pitch must have been to this in nineteen seventy eight when it was being written you know um it has so many things about the show that are outlandish and terrible and melodramatic and and beyond the realm of comprehension, and yet, like everything that Sondheim wrote, there is this through line of human connectivity and uh he had that genius ability to take these outlandish things and, and find the core human truth in them. And as a young kid who was, you know, finding my own way and having a hard time kind of getting out of my own shell and um, wondering, you know, how best to, c- to communicate myself, his work reached me at a very young age. There was something about it that felt like I, I, I knew, he like he knew me. And I think for those, those of us that have loved his work for a very, very long time, we of course love being swept away by the stories and by these 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 sometimes crazy characters that we have nothing in common with. But the music and the lyrics and the way they all tie together make us feel deeper about who we are. They make us feel things that we never expected, and that's what first brought me to the piece as just as a fan when I was younger.
3: Do you have early memories of the show, of the music, discovering it?
4: Um, yes, uh, I, I saw a production of it in Los Angeles by a wonderful cast called the East West. Players who are uh, an incredible Asian company that that works out of Los Angeles and and, and around the country, and and they blew my mind. Uh, it was my first time hearing the score. I then went out and got the VHS copy of uh, the famous Los Angeles recording of uh, George Hearn, the wonderful George Hearn, and uh, of course legendary late great Angela Lansbury, and. Pun intended. Devoured everything I I could from the musicals, as I did for, some, for so many of Sondheim's shows. And uh, you know, as a young baritone who could sing okay and act okay, but couldn't dance at all, um, these were the kinds of roles that <laughs> really, you know, I felt like the kinds of thing I, I could one day grow into.
3: I know. You're a huge fan of Stephen Sondheim, who passed away in 2021. Can you talk about what it is about his writing that you're drawn to most in general and in particular as a vocalist? You know, his songs are a feat to perform his songs.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they
4: are. It's a beast. It's a beast to sing uh, each night. I definitely um, this is there's not any any moment in this show to coast. Uh, it takes it requires an enormous amount of focus. Um, and an enormous amount of checking in, you know, really tuning in with yourself, with your cast. There's so much that you have to kind of lift in this emotionally and vocally that it 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 you're just, it's tiring. You you feel it at the end of the show. And uh, and what I what I love about his writing, um, especially uh, this this role, uh, some of his writing can be very staccato. The the writing for Sweeney is is has. Such incredible line and such incredible fluidity. There's this romanticism to to the music uh, for for Sweeney in particular that was one of the first things I connected with because I felt like, oh, that's something I can I can really play upon that juxtaposition of the romantic nature of the music and also these horrific things that are happening, you know, by his hand. And I know that that was a juxtaposition that really he he did, you know, by design and something that he was very, very enthusiastic about playing with. And, um, it's just, um, it's such a feast and it's something that even though everybody in this, this cast has known it their whole lives, you keep finding and you keep finding and finding and finding we've opened, we're officially frozen, but we keep finding. And that's the incredible thing about, about his work is that, um, you can keep peeling and peeling and never get to the center. So I, I can't wait to see what we find by show 100.
3: By frozen, you mean that, you know, when you're kind of working on workshopping a show and then doing previews, you might still make changes. But then when it's frozen, this is this is the version that you're going to try to at least play with every evening. Were there changes? That, like, were there important changes that happened in that workshopping and preview process? Oh,
4: absolutely. Um, we did the workshop, the musical workshop, just at podiums for about a week. And we just, our main goal for that was to get it off the page, to sing it, uh, you know, act in place, but just to get it, just get it out. And it was just us and a piano and some of Sondheim's closest friends and, um, and some people that we thought we might would be in our team at some point, point. 50, 50 people in the rehearsal room above, uh, above Hamilton. And, uh, and then the preview process was so, so, such an interesting time and very tiring time. Audiences that get preview tickets, you're watching something very very special because you're you're seeing something that that may be the only time that blocking happens the, you're seeing maybe a song that might not be in it the next the next time um, and those are the things that you know were really really fascinating to see because to us on stage sometimes those those felt really really small but then when I would have a friend come to the come to the show one night and then another night they'd say oh that that different lighting beat or that different you know, blocking cue. Oh, that, that made such a huge difference in the scene. So it's really a time during that period for us to get to know the roles better uh, and feel what that feels like for an audience, but also for our incredible um, creative team. That's a time for them to sculpt as well each day. And so the tables come out, the t- there's tables out in the audience and they've got their computers and they've got their mixing boards and light boards and things like that. And then it all gets taken away and an audience comes in and, and we do what we worked on that day.
3: You, um, when you're describing Sondheim, you talked about how, you know, he often w- writes staccato, but this of uh, Sweeney's a little more romantic. Could you give an example of that comparison that you're making?
4: Sure. Um, for instance, uh, you know, in a show of his, which is also a favorite of mine, Sunday in the Park with George. Um, that Annalie wrote,
3: Ashford was in.
4: That Annalie Ashford was also mm-hmm. in, yes, um, with Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, and they were both wonderful. Um you know, Sondheim wrote uh, the way that George Surratt painted, um, you know, lots of, you know, red, 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 orange, red, red, orange, orange, pick blue. you know, very staccato, um, almost pointillist the way he was, the way he wrote the notes, because that's what was going on in George's head. And so he brilliantly kind of made that synergy between what the character and what the music was doing. And, you know, there's one of my favorite scenes in Sweeney Todd is, is the second song of Act Two where this, they call the Joanna Quartet where Sweeney is, you know, dispatching victims with this kind of sociopathic ease and calmness and singing this, you know, and are you beautiful and pale, my turtle dove? You know, and he's he's singing about Joanna and how life is fine and I may miss you and maybe I won't and life is good and the machine is rolling and, you know, and meanwhile, the hands are quite you know calmly and and terrifyingly smoothly you know slitting throats and sending people down the chair and that could have been written very sharply and very uh angular and 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 more twisted uh but if if the if the actions weren't there for an audience to witness the song is is something that people might get, maybe not play at their wedding but something very very <laughs> Very, very, you know, um, romantic sounding Mm -hmm. and and more legato. So, yeah, I think those are two examples where he's made those choices and it's just so much fun.
3: Of course, one of the signature things about Sweeney Todd is the murdering. Different productions of Sweeney handle the killing differently. But in this one, you know, you do shave and kill. There's blood spurting out. And there's the chair that has the chute where the bodies slide down into the basement where they're made into meat pies. Can you talk about the decisions that your production made and what it was like to, like, wield a blade and have (laughs) fake blood coming at you?
4: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well— it was really nice to be able to have a a fake razor, plastic razor to kind of have all through the rehearsal process to just have in my hands. Like there was very few moments where I was hanging out where I just, I wasn't like playing with it and I took some good lessons on, you know, what the different um, ways of shaving are for a straight razor and just, just, I wanted to get it so comfortable in my hand because he says it's, you know, it's what makes his arm complete is this razor and so I wanted it to feel that way when I I pick it up on stage. Um, The other thing we kind of... Really wanted, and I remember me and uh, Mimi, our, our set designer, talked about it early on. Was like, "Let's petition for real for blood. I don't want red light. I want this to be blood." And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, blood. Let's get blood." And so, you know, the blood is is something that it took a while to get right. I think there were a few, and and the chair did too. There were definitely you talk about preview audiences get some things nobody else does. There were two nights where the chair didn't work, and poor Jamie Jackson, our extraordinary Judge Turpin. Had to crawl down the hole and pretend he was suffering and get down there, and the audience kind of laughed. and you just like, like well, that's previews. Uh, we've had a couple that the blood didn't come out. You know, we thought, okay, well, there's just you know, there's slow, it's slow. Um, but uh, you know, now we've got everything is very, very fine tuned and uh, and it all works. but but there's a lot of moving parts. everybody that that works on this stuff behind the scenes uh, is such a well-oiled machine, and everything we're doing on stage comes with, you know, an enormous, brilliant team of people backstage that are setting all this stuff up so that we uh, we get to look nice and gruesome out there.
3: You've been a professional vocal performer for decades now, but you were singing in concert halls and on albums as yourself. Do you have to do anything to your performance to change the way your voice sounds, to rough it up or make it gritty?
4: <laughs> well, there's a lot of vocal challenges in, in Sweeney Todd that are quite different from when I would just do a normal concert um the character commands a different a different approach you're using different colors they're all colors that i still have in my in my wheelhouse this just you're just tapping into different ones and allowing others to to take a rest until the next tour you know and so um there is a darker texture to this score it's f- far more baritone than i would normally maybe sing uh maybe not far more but there are definitely lower i'm definitely resting more in the warmer lower part of my range which has been really fun um, there's also a lot of screaming. There's a lot of yelling, there's a lot of angst and anguish. And so finding ways to do that in a healthy way each night are also really fun and challenging and and require a lot of rest in between. You know it it it's the kind of show where vocally and emotionally, I can't think about some of those songs and some of those moments that that maybe happen an hour later or two hours or even three hours later. Um, when I pop out of the stage at the beginning, I, I have to kind of take the ride vocally with the show and with the character and let it get me there um, because it is the kind of show where you just kind of hang on and, uh, and let the wave carry you.
3: I wanna ask you about the audience. I think Sweeney is such a beloved show, like people are fanatical about it, which may you know may lead to more pressure for the performers. But really I was, you know, I was lucky enough to see the show and the audience was so hungry and into the show. So at the beginning of the show, you know, during the ballad of Sweeney Todd. Um, the ensemble is telling the story. And then there's this big moment near the end of the song when Sweeney, you as Sweeney, come through the crowd and sing Attend the Tale of Sweeney Todd. And you know, I'm sure it's something you prepare for and at least the night I was there the cheers for you were so loud that you couldn't even hear you deliver those first lines. You
4: can't hear the first line. <laughs> you know? And you know what? That's fine, you know, because the next line is what happens then. Well, that's the play and he wouldn't want it to give it away. So you know what? They got a lot they got a lot of show left right. after that right. line, even if they cheer louder than my singing. But that's, I mean, we, we hear their enthusiasm before we even enter the stage. We hear their enthusiasm when the lights go down. We hear their enthusiasm when um, Judith Light did our our please turn off your cell phones message, you know, and they're cheering after please turn off your cell phones and enjoy the show. They're ready for this. And so, you know, we're, we hear it, we love it. we're We're excited that, you know, Sweeney Todd, of all things, is getting a you know, a rock star <laughs> to, You know, cheer out there. It's really, really fun.
2: We're listening to the interview Fresh Airs Anne-Marie Baldonado recorded with Josh Groban. Groban stars in the title role of the new Broadway revival of the Sondheim musical Sweeney Todd. Let's hear Josh Groban as Sweeney and Annalee Ashford as Mrs. Lovett singing My Friends from Act One of Sweeney Todd.
0: Speak to me.
4: I'll listen. I know, I know you've been locked out of sight all these years. Like me, my friend. Well, I've come home. Wonder
2: Interview with Josh Groban will continue after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air.
0: This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: Support for this podcast comes from the Newbauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation.
1: Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Molly C.B. Nesper, producer at Fresh Air.
5: And this is Seth Kelly, also a producer at Fresh Air.
1: If you like the Fresh Air podcast, we think there's a pretty good chance that you'll also like the Fresh Air newsletter.
5: It's a weekly newsletter written by us, the people who help make the show.
1: You'll get all the week's interviews and reviews in one place. Plus, staff recommendations, interviews from the Archive, bonus audio, and what's coming up on the show.
2: Imagine, an email you enjoy getting.
1: To subscribe, go to WHYY.org slash Fresh Air. This is
2: Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross, back with more of our interview with Josh Groban. He's starring as Sweeney Todd in a new Broadway revival of the Sondheim musical. He's sold millions of records since he first started recording as a teenager, working closely with producer David Foster. Groban has received Grammy, Emmy, and Tony nominations. The Tony nomination was for his starring role in the musical Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812. Josh Groban spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Boldenaro
3: Now, you were born and raised in Los Angeles. Can you tell us a little bit about your family and the neighborhood where you grew up?
4: Um, I grew up in an area of L.A. called Hancock Park, and um, I, I grew up in a... very artistic, but not showbiz family. Um, my mom who helps me run my arts education foundation now, um, she was a visual art teacher, um, at a couple of different schools in Los Angeles. And my dad, uh, played jazz trumpet all through college. And, you know, at some point decided that was enough of that, even though he was incredible and we have old recordings of him playing and he was just awesome. Uh, he went into business. He's a you know an executive recruiter. They call a headhunter. And so, um, you know, they they both have musical and artistic um, sensibilities. But um, the way that I was introduced to entertainment, um, and my brother as well, who's a brilliant um, TV and film director, um, we both found our bug really naturally. And then in high school. Having the great privilege of having a th- a good theater program uh, in school, um, I was able to, you know, join the ensemble of a of of anything goes, you know, in seventh grade, and just putting on a costume and standing on stage and feeling part of something like that um, was was life altering.
3: Yeah, you went to a performing. Arts High School in LA, and you started to do musical theater. You played Tevia in a production of Fiddler on the Roof while you were in high school. And I want to play a clip from it from the big oh number. If I were a rich man, <laughs> this is you your can, life. Yeah, you can find this on YouTube. <laughs> it, um, can you is tell there a me? Mute button? Can I? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Can you tell <laughs> me? Okay. No, you're great. Don't worry. Can you tell me um, where this was, how old you were here, and what year it would have been?
4: Uh, sure. So this would have been 1999. I was either, I think I was 17. Um, and this was at the wonderful, wonderful Los Angeles County High School for the Arts, um, which is still around and thriving even more than ever. I just recently went and saw their production of Sweeney Todd, um, which was so much fun to see. And a couple of their students have already come to the show. And um, and it it's a place where um, I really cut my teeth and really found myself and found my musical theater confidence. And one of the first lead roles I got was uh, was Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof, and it was uh, a lot of fun. I could not grow a real beard; um, that was a fake, a fake beard. And uh, but it was it was a blast.
3: Okay, let's hear a little bit of it. If I
4: were a rich
0: man, yidle didle dum. All day long, I'd biddy biddy bum if I were a wealthy man who wouldn't have to work
4: hard. Yidle didle didle doob doob didle didle dum.
0: If I were a biddy biddy rich yidle didle 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 man.
2: That's
3: my guest, Josh Grobin in a high school production of Fiddler on the Roof. Um, you, you mentioned a fake beard, and because the yeah. video is old, it, it actually doesn't look that different from your Sweeney beard. I'm no, it say. doesn't. Strangely,
4: strangely enough, my real beard grew in quite nicely, uh, very very similarly to that to that beard. But um, yeah, uh, yeah well, that was well, a lot of fun.
3: Yeah, what's striking to me here is that your voice is already so full. I, I'm going to read the, the Wikipedia description of Tevye, which is, quote, Jewish dairyman living in the Russian empire who is patriarch of a family. And this performance is giving me that. It's giving me Tevye. <laughs> I'm so did, glad. Did you feel like you had a voice that was beyond your years, yeah. even back then?
4: I did. I definitely felt like I had puppy paws, you know, with my voice and that I, I needed to grow into it, which is why it's so nice to to kind of finally be like 42. You know, I'm finally like at the age where my voice sounds. And, um, you know, it's uh, it was... It was uh, just an incredible platform to sink in and, and feel that and feel, you know, that, that that performance in that year was really when I started to feel like my voice was coming into its own. Um, and, you know, it's – and again, many of the friends that I made from that production are still some of my close friends today. Um you know, it, uh, it was uh, wonderful. Every every Jewish relative on my father's side came and and, and saw it and uh, pinched my cheeks, and it was uh, it was just a it was just a wonderful experience all around. I'll never I'll never forget it. And uh, and it, it was it was. I go back and I listen to it and I go, wow, kid, you were so self critical, but you were actually pretty <laughs> You pretty good.
3: Yeah. You, you've said that you felt kind of like you felt old, like an old soul, but does that have to do with your singing voice? You think that, you know, you have this baritone deep voice from that time you were a teenager.
4: Yeah. I mean, I, I had somebody tell me once when I sang at a, you know, recital or something when I was really young when I was like 15 and said, you know, you know, you've got, you've got an incredible light bulb. You just need to up the wattage. And, uh, and which was kind of mean at an anniversary. A <laughs> like, I don't know you, sir. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, that was like the equivalent of, you know, realizing that I could, you know, throw a football or, you know, hit, hit a home run. You know, I, I, to me, that was my, that was my sport, you know, was realizing that I had that thing that, that I could do and I could really feel confident with. And it took until about 11th grade or even 12th grade, I would say, which is when that performance happened for me to actually feel, you know, um, that I, I could, could do this and do it, do it reasonably well. Um, and, and it was really not long after that clip you just played that David Foster kind of said, you know, Hey, you know, I need a singer for something. Uh, you know, would you mind coming and and singing at this event? And, and, you know, that was 17 and I was in the studio at, 18 and a half.
3: I want to ask you about your singing career. You know, you um, made records toured and were heralded as this teen young man prodigy almost with this deep operatic voice. How would you describe the music that you were making with David Foster, the producer?
4: We were both I think trying to um, trying to to uh, in, enjoy this this wonderful path that had been kind of laid for us by um, a lot of wonderful classical singers who were, you know, exploring more contemporary feels and sounds. The three, the three tenors, Andrea Bocelli, of course. Um, you know, Sarah Brightman, who took me on her tour when I was young. She came from musical theater and was making these really kind of eclectic pop albums. Um, and so it 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 really seemed at the time like there was this this realm where a voice like mine, which didn't really fit in one purest place or the other. I, when I woke up in the morning, it always kind of felt like it was in the middle that there was, um, there was a a way to make music that allowed me to kind of reach my highest potential as a singer at the time. And also to, um, to do it with somebody who knows how to make voices fly. I mean, David Foster singing in the studio with him is, uh, is, is an extraordinary task and he has such a great ear for what works and how to make a song you know lift in all the incredible ways and so it was a master class it was an incredible learning experience for me and um and it's been that kind of serendipity um ever since i've been very lucky of course lots of peaks and valleys but um but i've had had some incredible opportunities
3: You've said that all that success, all that adoration and fandom directed towards you at that age, that performance schedule of touring and recording caused you a lot of stress and anxiety. Did those feelings of anxiety around performing, like did they stay with you at all or do they manifest themselves still in different ways?
4: So the nerves got to me big when I was younger, um, especially when you add to that like morning TV, you know, your voice is not warm at six in the morning and jet lag. And Hey, we need to fly you out to Japan to do this show. And your voice is going, wait a minute, it's three in the morning for me. What are you doing? And the songs that I had to sing were really, really hard. So being neurotic already, it was just feeling that pressure was just, was really hard. I was very, very, very hard on myself. I was more critical of myself than any critic could have possibly been um, at that age and and maybe still am. But um, but the difference between the nerves that I had then and the anxiety or the nerves that I get now backstage is back then those nerves came with me onto the stage. And I was, I look back at some of those earlier performances and I think, oh God, you were, you were really shaky. You were, your breath wasn't there. Your pitch was off because you were, you were, you know, your throat closed up and you were just, you were just in your, you're living in your head. And now the 10,000 hours have, have given me a way to kind of channel those nerves into into an excitement to go and take the reins cuz you realize that those nerves are a lack of control. You don't know what's going to happen out there. You don't know whether people are going to like it, you don't know whether you're going to do a good job. And so for me now, I I think of those nerves as an unknown and then when I go on stage that becomes the time when I get to have it be known and I get to put it in my control and make it what I want it to be. And that's something I had to kind of grow into after many years. I would say the first six or seven years of my career, I was battling the the former. And after that, I kind of learned to, to embrace the latter.
3: If you're just joining us, my guest is Grammy, Tony, and Emmy nominee Josh Groban. He's sold millions of records since he first started performing as a singer when he was a teenager. He's now starring on Broadway as Sweeney Todd in a new revival of the Stephen Sondheim musical. We'll talk more after a break. This is Fresh Air.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, MassMutual. According to calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. MassMutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a MassMutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short- or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com.
1: Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. To actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.
3: You continued to perform tour release albums, but you also along the way found opportunities to act. And I always admired how you would play around with your persona and make cameos and play around with your image. For example, you're in episodes of The Office, Glee, Alan McBeal. Um, you made cameos as yourself in Parks and Recreation. That one is a personal favorite of mine. And you also.
4: I hit all the yes. television.
3: <laughs> and you also sang a song in an episode of the show, Crazy Ex Girlfriend. One of the writers of the, this song um, that you sang was the late Adam Schlesinger. It's a song that comes at a very serious part of the show when the main character, Rebecca, played by Rachel Bloom, is at a low point and reflecting on how her life doesn't make sense like it does in the movies. As she does this, she imagines you singing next to her, giving voice to her thoughts. It's a serious moment, but as it is with this show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, the grave and the heavy coexist with the comedy. I want to play a bit of this song called The End of the Movie.
5: The end of the movie Whoa, whoa, whoa But real life
4: isn't a movie No, no, no You want things to be wrapped up neatly The way that stories do You're looking for answers But answers aren't looking for you Because life is a gradual series of revelations that occur over a period of time It's not some carefully crafted story It's a mess and we're all gonna die If you saw a movie that was like real life You'd be like, what the hell was that movie about? It was really all over the place Life doesn't
3: make narrative sense nuh that's Josh Grobin from an episode of the series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Later in the song, you even sing your own name. <laughs> um, <laughs> why, why do you enjoy making these appearances in comedies as yourself?
4: Um, for me, it was a way to, you know, whether I was playing a goofy version of myself or whether I was playing a, a goofy other kind of character, it, it was a way for me to kind of, break the ice of just showing a little bit of the other side of my head you know when you when you sing serious music and you've been promoted as a really serious artist for so long you're you're yearning to show more sides of your own personality and before i started realizing that i had kind of a serious baritone voice like my whole my love was comedy i loved i was part of an improv troupe in los angeles and i was i loved hanging out with funny people and i loved you know doing comedy and so you know, it, it gave me a chance to kind of, um, you know, I don't take myself very seriously. I take my music and, and what I do very seriously, but I don't take myself very seriously. And so it gave me a chance to, to kind of show that side and to, and, to, and to have a little bit of fun with that, which, is, uh, which was, which was oh, every time I had a friend, you know, reach out to say, hey, we've got a funny bit. And especially if it was on a show that I loved watching, um, I always jumped to the opportunity.
3: I wonder if you, looking back at how you wanted to be in musical theater all those years back, and here you are playing one of your dream roles, if not a main dream role, do you think about that, about your younger self and what he would think?
4: You know, I give myself time to, to do that. Um, it's, it's really, I mean, I, I can't even describe sometimes in words just how special it is. Um, and sometimes that specialness can be a detriment. Because ultimately, it's for the audience. And so there's a good amount of time where I have to, for my own, you know, uh, for my own sake, performance-wise, leave some of that um, emotion and full-circle-ness of it at the door to do the the job. Um, And then there are times where I allow myself to really sink in and enjoy and appreciate what this has meant all of these years. I have a I have a, a signed photograph of George Hearns <laughs> in my home when he was doing... I was here for... I was in New York looking at colleges. I was 17. It was around the time I was doing Fiddler, actually. And uh, George Hearn was doing Diary of Anne Frank uh, with uh, Natalie Portman. He was playing Mr. Frank. And, um, and I had a letter all written out. I wrote the whole thing telling him how much I just loved his Sweeney Todd and just love his work and love his voice and would he be so kind to send me a, an eight by 10, you know? And I brought it up to the front of the stage, which, you know, of course, now I realize like, don't do that, you know? Um, but I, I brought a letter up to the front of the stage and I found a stage hand. I said, excuse me, excuse me, can you please pass this letter? And, and the guy goes, no, 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 we're not accepting anything for Natalie Portman. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, no, 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 this is for, uh, this is for George Hearn. And he goes, Oh, for George. Yeah. Yeah. He'd love that. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, and so I handed it to the stage I'm never expecting to to get anything back. I know they're extremely busy. And uh sure enough, a couple months later I got an eight by ten back to Josh Fondley, George Hearn. And uh I this is I've never I've never told this story publicly, so I don't think he has any idea that this happened and that I'm now doing Sweeney, but um if uh if any of you know him, <laughs> please pass it along that I'm very grateful that he did that. And it's it's uh it, you know, I, like I said, it just it just it means so much to me that I get to um, carry the torch right now for for this iconic piece and for this role and to um, to have this time to share it with new audiences um, until the next person takes it on.
3: Josh Groben, thank you so much for your time and congratulations again on Sweeney Todd.
4: I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.
2: Josh Groban is starring on Broadway in the revival of Sweeney Todd. He spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. After a break, Maureen Corrigan will review a new memoir by Nicole Chung. Maureen says it will hit close to home for many readers. This is Fresh Air.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community.
5: My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable
1: disparities for future generations of black women as it relates to cancer.
0: To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a tempur mattress made with a -a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day Sale and sleep at night.
2: Nicole Chung's first book, a memoir called All You Can Ever Know, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan says that Chung's new memoir, A Living Remedy, will hit close to home for many readers.
5: Here's Maureen's review. Many of us have been through it. By us I mean adult children, and by it, I mean witnessing our parents decline and die, even as we're scrambling to pay the bills generated by the high cost of medical care in America. In her just-published memoir called A Living Remedy, Nicole Chung chronicles her experience of this ordeal, complicated by class, geographical distance, the pandemic, and the fact that she's an only child, as well as a transracial adoptee, a situation she explored in her best-selling first memoir, All You Can Ever Know. As a mother by adoption, I was initially hesitant to read Chung's first memoir. She does excavate some hard truths, especially about transracial adoption. But I also came away from that account struck by the deep love Chung expressed for her adoptive parents, the very same parents whose one after another loss she endures here. So it is that late in a living remedy, when a cousin calls the grieving Chung and asks the question, how are you feeling? She hears herself answer, it's like being unadopted. Class identity, however, much more than racial identity or adoption, is the factor that greatly determines the course of events recalled in a living remedy. Though her parents would always say they were middle class, their work history, precarious, sometimes with iffy health benefits, placed them squarely in the working class. Her dad worked first as a printer and then in service jobs in the fast food industry. For a time, her mom was a respiratory therapist and then held a series of short-term clerical jobs. When her mother was diagnosed with cancer during Chung's junior year of high school, she had just been laid off. Chung's father was earning an hourly wage managing a pizza restaurant. After her mother's serious health scare, Chung says, I had sensed that we no longer lived paycheck to paycheck, as my mother had once told me, but emergency to emergency. What had seemed like stability proved to be a flimsy, shallow facsimile of it, a version known to so many American families dependent on absolutely everything going right. As you can hear from that quote, Chung is a straightforward writer. It's not the poetic beauty of her language that distinguishes this memoir, but the accrued power of a story told in plain, direct sentences, a story that can feel overwhelmingly shameful to the adult child living through it. Because the other tale Chung is telling here is about the hiding-in-plain-sight predicament of class climbers like herself, who have plenty of cultural capital, but not so much the other kind. As a teenager, Chung was awarded a scholarship to college and moved across the country from her childhood home in Oregon She married, had two children, went on to an MFA program, and worked as an editor and writer. Yet during the time her 60-something-year-old father was dying, of diabetes, renal failure, and most certainly from decades of postponing costly medical checkups, Chung and her family couldn't afford to fly more than once a year, maybe, to visit her parents. Here's what she says about that situation. If you grow up as I did and happen to be very fortunate as I was, your family might be able to sacrifice much so that you can go to college. You'll feel grateful for every subsequent opportunity you get, even as an unexpected, sometimes painful distance yawns between you and the place you came from. But in this country, unless you attain extraordinary wealth, you will likely be unable to help your loved ones in all the ways you'd hoped. You will learn to live with the specific hollow guilt of those who leave hardship behind, yet are unable to bring anyone else with them. All too soon after her father's death, Chung's mother, also in her 60s, has a recurrence of cancer which spreads quickly. Chung is able to visit her mother once before the pandemic makes travel too risky. I can't tell you about her death, Chung simply states, because I didn't witness it. A living remedy is a powerful testament to the failures of our healthcare system and to the limits of what most of us can do for those we love. The anger and sense of helplessness that radiate off Chung's pages made me think of the man with night sweats, Tom Gunn's great poem about the AIDS epidemic. Gunn's last lines are, As if hands were enough, to hold an avalanche off.
2: Marine Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Nicole Chung's new memoir called A Living Remedy. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, my guest will be Mary Louise Kelly, a host of All Things Considered. She covered national security for NPR for two decades. Her new memoir is about her ongoing attempts to be a good mother and be good at her job at the same time. Her job has required covering breaking news and reporting from around the world, including war zones. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Boldenato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify.